You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 138, The Soviet Union, Part 8, The Great Purges. This week, a big thank you goes out to SOMBB1, Mike, Zachary, and Gloria for choosing to support the podcast by becoming members. You can find out more over at historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members. I would also like to thank Matthew for the donation this week. We are now back to what will be the final episode of this series on the internal political developments in the Soviet Union during the 1930s, but it's an important one. This episode will cover the political purges that would occur in the second half of the 1930s, as Stalin would, for lack of a better phrase, clean house. These actions are referred to as the Great Purge, or the Great Terror, and it would see thousands of individuals imprisoned or executed, ranging from previously high-placed communist leaders all the way down to normal people. Targets for these purges would also be found in the Soviet military, with those individuals deserving their own episode due to the importance of the military purges to the story of the Second World War. So we'll cover all the military purges in episode 139 next week. The general basis for all of the actions that would take place during the purges was the idea that there was a great conspiracy, which which had the goal of overthrowing the Soviet leaders and the communist system. As we have been talking about many times up to this point, they were cast as manifest threats to communism and to the Soviet Union. When cast in this light, all of the actions of those who were purged were escalated to treason, and the punishment was frequently execution. The conduit for the actions of the purges would be the NKVD, or the People's Commissariat for Internal Affairs, with the NKVD's actions during the purges making them one of the most feared groups within the Soviet Union. While the purges would begin later in the 1930s, one of the important steps on the way to the purge would be the Ryutin Affair, which was named after Martin Ryutin, a Moscow party official during the early 1930s. In March 1932, Ryutin would publish a document titled Stalin and the Crisis of the Proletarian Dictatorship, and it discussed at length the problems that Stalin was causing and that he had to be dealt with personally if the revolution was to continue. Here's a small quote. Quote, The elimination of Stalin and his clique via the normal democratic means guaranteed by the rules of the party in the Soviet constitution is completely impossible. The party has two choices, 
to continue meekly to endure the mockery of Leninism, terror, and to wait calmly for the final collapse of the proletarian dictatorship, or to eliminate this clique by force and save the cause of communism. End quote. As you can see, the document was not pulling any punches, and it was 194 pages in length, so it had a lot of punches to throw. A copy of this document made its way into Stalin's hands, and he was, believe it or not, not exactly thrilled with its contents. But the document itself would not precipitate the purges, but it would be used as a key piece of evidence in almost all of the major public show trials of the purge years. It would be called a treasonous document, and those who could be associated with it in any way were tried and convicted of that treason. To be fair to Stalin and his supporters, it was a treasonous document if you considered action against Stalin to be treason. It called for Stalin to be physically removed. Violence would be necessary. But, and this was the key point of many moments in many actions between the revolution and the purges, both sides felt that they were protecting the revolution, and so that violence was necessary. Stalin, at least publicly, proclaimed and and built support around the idea that he was protecting the revolution, protecting communism from the treasonous right deviationists, the fascists, and the capitalists. The Ryutin text and those that opposed Stalin believed that his policies had strayed from the path of communism and towards the things that Stalin himself claimed to be defending against. It just so happened that Stalin was better at consolidating and using power, which allowed him to consolidate his power during the late 1920s, and then in the late 1930s, he would use that power to begin an outburst of violence against those he claimed were threats to the revolution. While the Ryutin text would be a foundational text used to facilitate the actions of the purges, the moment that would begin the purges would not occur until December 1st, 1934, when Sergei Kirov was killed. Kirov had been a close associate of Stalin and had been used as Stalin's guy in Leningrad, who had taken over the Leningrad party apparatus to push Zinoviev out of his position of power in Leningrad. Over the years that he was in charge of the Leningrad party, Kirov would be a generally popular party leader. He's even known to have refused a few of Stalin's orders from time to time, which is somewhat remarkable due to how that ended up for many people. But there's no real evidence that he was anything other than a loyal follower of Stalin. Although rumors of him being an anti-Stalin conspirator do linger out there, there's not a lot of proof of that. But then he was killed, and how his death was discussed made his death very important. It was a great display of Stalin and his supporters taking a kind of an unrelated event and expertly spinning it to their needs. The man who would murder Kirov would be Leonid Nikolov, a former member of the party who had been expelled. Beyond his name and his history with the party, things get fuzzy, because there are a lot of different theories and stories told about why Nikolov killed Kirov. What is known is that he would kill Kirov at the Smolny Institute, walking up to him and shooting him with a pistol. Kirov would die, and Nikolov would be executed for his actions on December 29th. And that is, in many ways, where the firm information about the assassination ends. After Kirov's murder, the Soviet leaders would claim that Nikolov was working with the anti-Stalin opposition, probably with Zinoviev and his followers, in an attempt to bring back the old Leningrad party leaders. He would be called by the newspapers, quote, the treacherous hand of an enemy of the working class. Other theories are that he was instead actually acting on orders or influenced by party leadership, under the theory that they were sacrificing Kirov to manufacture an excuse for the purges that would follow. 
There would be commissions set up in the post-Stalin era, Khrushchev and Gorbachev sort of eras, to investigate the Kirov murder more closely. The conclusion that these investigations came to was that there was no evidence that Nikolov was involved in any way with anti-Stalin opposition groups, and that whatever evidence for this connection that existed was manufactured after the fact. But equally, there was not a lot of hard evidence that Nikolov was acting on the instructions of Stalin or the party leaders. I quite like this quote from Stalin, a new biography of a dictator, on why the idea that Nikolov was working directly for Stalin is such an appealing idea. Quote, The idea that Stalin was behind Kirov's murder has all of the hallmarks of a conspiracy theory. Such theories tend to rest on the idea that if an event benefits some sinister person, he must have brought it about. They tend to deny the possibility of random occurrences and ignore the fact that chance events happen all the time, end quote. I like that quote, and I basically completely agree with it. The discussions about the motivations for Kirov's murder really remind me something of like the, the accusations made about the causes of the Reichstag fire. In both cases, I'm personally inclined towards the simplest answer, that the perpetrator, in this case Nikolov, was merely an individual driven by his own desires whose actions were capitalized on by a group in power for their own purposes— also, as with the Reichstag fire, after December 1st, 1934, the exact truth of why Kirov was killed didn't really matter at all. All that mattered was that it could be used as an excuse for the actions that were taken over the following years during the purges. Placing the blame on the former opposition leaders very quickly allowed events to transition from simple blame to criminal charges. Up until Kirov's murder, former leaders like Zinoviev and Kamenev had been allowed to continue to live their lives. They had been stripped of their positions of power within the Communist Party, but they were still party members, often considered to be in good standing, and were able to hold lesser positions of leadership. They also still had their own supporters within the party, with patronage and support networks that dated back to the revolution or even before. But with these same individuals being blamed for the murder of Kirov, this was all about to change. Suddenly, they were classified as enemies and anti-communist rebels. Because of this, they had to be arrested, and they would have to be tried and convicted, not in private, but instead in a series of show trials with the goal of making it clear, publicly clear, that they had been working against Stalin, and more importantly, they had been working against the future of the Soviet Union. The show trials were not really trials. They were media events staged for the purposes of propaganda. And it would not just be Zinoviev and Kamenev who were sentenced as part of these events, but instead dozens of other individuals who had previously been identified for their actions or their words as anti-Stalinist agitators. The first of these trials would be held in late 1934 and then into early 1935. These initial trials would result in sentences of 10 years for many of the former leaders, and during those trials they were forced to admit that they were morally complicit with the actions of Nikolov and the murder of Kirov. They would be sent to prison, but it would not be their last trip in front of the show trial. These events were also used as a good excuse to round up thousands of individuals who had been closely connected with those leaders, and who were formerly of groups where it was felt resistance to the new direction of the Soviet Union was particularly strong, former nobles, clergy, czarist officials, etc. They were arrested en masse and often sent in exile to gulag camps. It was claimed that they were all guilty of counter-revolutionary activity, which was a broad charge that could be applied to a variety of individuals in a variety of circumstances. Months later, in August 1936, Zinoviev and Kamenev and other former leaders would find themselves in another show trial. 
During this trial, after months of imprisonments, they would tell the story that they were expected to tell. Not only had they been personally involved with Kirov's murder, they were working with Trotsky. They said they'd met Trotsky in Berlin in 1932, and the plan was for Kirov to be the first assassination before there were other attempts made on other Soviet leaders. There is no hard evidence. There was no hard evidence of any of this. But Zinoviev, Kamenev, and others would produce quotes from memory from letters with Trotsky as proof of what had happened. The letters were not presented. The general theory of the trials is that the most important thing was the confession of the accused. If they confessed, they were guilty. Simple as that. This did, of course, ignore the fact that confessions can be suggested with varying degrees of force to those who were imprisoned for long periods. The deal that had been struck before the confession was that those accused would confess to their involvement, say the things they were told to say, and in exchange, they would not be killed. The arrangement would be confirmed by Soviet investigations in the last years of the Soviet Union that this agreement had been made. And so the accused said what they were told to say, but then instead of not being killed, they would instead be executed just a few days later. Once the confessions of the initial set of former leaders had been publicly made, the floodgates could open under the theory that the anti-communist contagion originating in Trotsky, transmitted through Zinoviev, Kamenev, and their associates, had infected many others. In January 1937, the second major show trial was held, with a particular focus on economic and industrial leaders. The charge against them was purposeful sabotage of the Soviet economy, which had resulted in the failure to meet the goals of the five-year plans. That sabotage was, of course, rooted in their counter-revolutionary ideas. The third show trial would involve Bukharin, Rykov, and others, against the charge being counter-revolutionary agitation due to their former connections with men like Zinoviev and Kamenev, with Bukharin having been initially removed from the Politburo for illicitly meeting with a disgraced Kamenev several years before. With former leaders being tried and, and executed or exiled, a new set of party leaders would emerge, men like Nikita Khrushchev and Andrei Izhanov, who would support and help facilitate the purges, and Nikolai Yezhov, who would take over at the head of the NKVD. He would replace Yagoda, who had previously led the NKVD from 1934 to 1936, but who would find himself on the wrong end of one of the purges under the accusation that he had obstructed efforts by others to properly purge the Leningrad party. Yezhov would also not last very long in his position for roughly the same reason. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. 
Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. While the most famous result of the purges would be the show trials, the effects of the purges were far more widespread. Throughout 1937, the number of individuals targeted by the purge continued to grow. At the start, it numbered at maximum a few tens of thousands, and the party was purged of those who were in any way connected with the former opposition, or were just unlucky. But in August 1937, the number of those who were targeted greatly expanded outside of just party officials, transitioning a party purge into what is often called the Great Terror. The root of this expansion was an NKVD Order 447, which was approved by the Politburo in July 1937. It introduced new target lists and placed expectations on different regions to find and convict a certain number of individuals to be either killed or imprisoned. The list of targets included the Kulaks, with the expanded definition of what that meant, along with whole groups of individuals who had done certain things in the pre-revolutionary years. Former Tsarist officials, former members of the white groups from the Civil War, former communists or Bolsheviks who had fallen out of favor for criticizing the actions of Stalin's and other leaders, people who were already imprisoned for previous activities, even those that had been formerly released. You could also be targeted based simply on your ethnicity, with many ethnic groups being targeted. Poles, Germans, Romanians, Latvians, Estonians, Finns, Greeks, Afghans, Iranians, Chinese, Bulgarians, Macedonians, and other groups. Regardless of why a specific individual found themselves as a target of the purge, the accusation was largely the same, being an anti-Soviet and counter-revolutionary threat. The exact number of individuals who were arrested during the first year of the purge is unknown, but the best number may be around 1.6 million people and 700,000 executed. I would just caution by saying you can find a wide variance on these numbers, but those two numbers kind of are in the middle of what you'll find out there. And it also continued, though at a lesser scale, throughout late 1938 and into early 1939. Throughout this entire time period, it can be difficult to fully know what an average individual living in the Soviet Union thought about what was happening, but it's worth noting that there were many accounts from this time period that show that many individuals did really believe that those who were being arrested, even those that they might know, were guilty of being enemies of the revolution and actively working against the Soviet Union. Others, even if they were concerned that innocent people were being convicted during, the, during this time period, often believed that the number of truly innocent people caught up in the purges was small, or that, at some level, the actions, you know, were still a net positive. Lev Kopilev, who saw the purges firsthand and lived in the Soviet Union during this time, would later write, quote, I convinced myself and others that the main thing had remained unchanged, that all our ills, malefactions, and falsehoods were inevitable but temporary afflictions in our overall healthy society. In freeing ourselves from barbarity, we were forced to resort to barbaric methods, and in repulsing cruel and crafty foes, we could not do that without cruelty and craftiness. End quote. The generally held belief in modern times is that the purges and the terror were not based on any real evidence of a grand conspiracy against the Soviet leadership. 
And because of the very divisive opinions on Stalin held by various groups, there's also very different opinions held on Stalin's role in the purges and the actions of the NKVD during the terror period from 1937 to 1939. What is certain is that Stalin knew about what was happening. He received very frequent updates on events, arrests, executions. He would also set the course of the purges, signing many of the documents that would make it happen. Stalin would also play a role in what evidence should be fabricated against the former communist leaders during the show trials, and then also against other party leaders over the following years. In several cases, all that was needed for someone to be purged was Stalin's belief that they were guilty. If he believed you were guilty, then you were guilty. And the weapon used to prove that guilt would be the NKVD. I think an important detail is that Stalin was not just giving high-level directions during this time. He was often involved in the minutest of details of the purges, signing lists of individuals who would be imprisoned or executed, and making decisions about which of those actions should be taken against which particular individuals. But also, he was not involved in every single decision. There, there were so many lists, so many groups targeted by others in the party leadership or by local party officials. In those cases, Stalin set the stage, and those who supported him sort of ran with his intentions. The person who ran with those intentions the most was Yezhov, who would be even more involved in the exact details of how the purge was executed. But Yezhov would very soon find himself a target as well, with the sequence of events that would lead to Yezhov's execution beginning in August 1938, when Stalin appointed Lavretti Beria as Yezhov's deputy. In October, those loyal to Yezhov were arrested, and they were forced to confess that Yezhov was leading a counter-revolutionary group within the NKVD. Yezhov would then be arrested and executed, just like Yagoda before him. No one but Stalin was truly safe from the purges. It's kind of the lesson from Yezhov here. And that included the Red Army, who would find itself a target of particular focus during the purges, which we will cover next episode. <laughs> 